uh, towards the end of the 15th century, Pope Alexander VI decreed that Spain could claim any land in the New World uh, as long as under the condition that the natives were converted to Christianity. And with the prospect of making a fortune and going on mission, Hernan Cortes decided he would go to the New World. Here's a photo of him. Uh, After arriving in Cuba, Uh, Cortez was sent to Mexico to conquer that land, claiming that land in the name of the Spanish crown. Uh, Cortez's arrival in Mexico in 1519 was very unique. There had been a prophecy in that land, in the Aztec culture, that one of their gods would return uh, in a particular year, at a particular time, and that god was described as being a white-bearded man. So when a white-bearded man arrived on their shores, seemingly matching perfectly with the, the prophecy and the timing and everything, they essentially gave all ruling authority to Cortez and his men. And so Montezuma, the ruler of the Aztec people, handed their fate over to the Spanish invaders who would destroy the ancient city of Tenochtitlan and killed many of the Aztec people, including their leader, and would build on top of it Mexico City. The Aztec people and leadership believed that these new rulers, that these gods, that they were good, that that they were fulfilling prophecy that they would be good rulers, that they would lead them into uh, prosperity and blessing. Sounds familiar? Sounds like just about any political ad today. So many promises. But this is the the condition of the human heart, is it not? What we want is is we want comfort. We we want ease. We want someone to, to manage everything for us. We want prosperity, and we're willing to anoint anyone who promises to give us those things. But is that the right mentality as believers? How should we view kings and kingdoms? How should we view leaders and and nations? Well, as we've done for the last two weeks, let us look at the origins of kings and kingdoms from Scripture. Our first point, kings then. Now, before we get to human kings and kingdoms, we have to see that God is king first. As we read Psalm 47 just a minute ago, we also read in Psalm 10, 16, says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. King Jehoshaphat in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20 says, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all. All the kingdoms of the nations in your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Or King Hezekiah in Isaiah 37. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone are the God of all kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. God is the the sovereign ruler of the entire universe. 
God is the ultimate king. He is the forever and ever king. He, he is ruler over all of the earth, over all of creation. But let's go back to Genesis to look at earthly king and kingdom origins. Clearly, Adam is portrayed as a king. As we talked about last week, he was portrayed as a, as a priest. And God gives Adam this commission that he would have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the, the animals of the land and the creeping things on the earth and the, and the plants and the seeds for food. Kingship is at the heart of the commission that God gives to Adam. He is granted dominion over the, the plant life and the animal life on the earth. He's told to have many children in order to subdue the earth and to take dominion over it. Adam is to rule over the whole, uh, over the whole world as a subordinate king. He, he is always under the authority of God who is the true king over all. And Adam is to spread his dominion even outside of the boundaries of, uh, of the Garden of Eden so that it branches out to its, its, its furthest reaches of creation. And in, in this sense, God reigns over his creation in and through Adam. But as we know, Adam fails to take dominion over the earth. Instead, he, he rebels against his sovereign the Lord Almighty. So does God abandon his intention to, to rule over the earth through a human king? No. In fact, in Deuteronomy, he gives the qualifications for what the earthly king will look like. In chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, he says, the Lord, will, the Lord himself will choose the king. Uh, he must be an Israelite. The king must not rely on the military aid of Egypt. He must guard his heart against idolatry, especially the marrying of foreign women. He must not rely on uh, his wealth as a, as a power. He must, and he must rule according to God's law. But before we get there, we see kingship even earlier in Genesis, in Abraham, with the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, we see a renewed commitment of God on God's part to rule over the entire world through his chosen means. And this is not simply through the single man, Adam, but through kings who will rule over a great nation. God will bless Abraham abundantly and make him through his descendants into a great nation that God will bless. And of course, you all are very familiar with this because we've been crawling our way through Genesis over a long period of time, and it's been a true blessing to us, and it helps us understand prophet, priest, and king with great detail. But you see, it's, it, it's that the blessing will be to all the families of the earth. And we remember from Genesis 17, uh, 4 through 6, the, the divine mandate, the dominion mandate that was originally given to Adam is now renewed with Abram. Now his name has been changed and we read, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. 
where Adam is, is given um, responsibility to, to take dominion, Abraham, through the covenant, is granted dominion by God. Where Adam was to, to multiply and subdue the earth, Abraham will be made into a nation. Because Adam's commission was, was before sin had existed on the earth, there were, there were no obstacles to him doing his duties. But after sin, if dominion over the earth will be possible, it will be a gift from God. So with the Abrahamic promise, the stage is set for Israel's future role. Israel, through its kings, is to bless all of the nations of the world, right? As God's reign extends across the, the, the face of the earth. And there's a point where, where, where Israel doesn't have a king yet, but they're desperate for one. They need a godly ruler. They need someone to take control. And we see this in the downward spiral of, of national sin and rebellion in the book of Judges, where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, right? That's the theme throughout the book of Judges. And Israel, again, was desperate for leadership. They're, they're desperate for a capable leader. And so the first king comes in the form of King Saul, when the people of Israel were, were, were with wrong motivations, they, they, they say, we don't want you as king, God. We want a king like the, like the rest of the nations around us. We want to look like everybody else. And so they ask for a king in 1 Samuel 8. And God gives them what they want. He, he gives them a king that is just like all the other nations. And Saul is just that. He does not rule according to the Lord's commands. And then he's so terrible that he has to be removed from the throne, which leads us to David. David, with whom God enters into a covenant and promises to preserve a kingly line into the future because Israel wanted a king like the nations. It wasn't wrong that they wanted a king. It was, the, it was the way they wanted the king. It was the intention behind the king. Remember in Deuteronomy 17, God always intended to set up a line of kings, but they've gone about it all wrong. And of course, I think you know that Israel doesn't really have a good history with kings. They're, they're not good. Why were the Israelite kings such bad managers? They never took in any prophets. <laughs> I spent an embarrassing amount of time looking up jokes about kings in the Old Testament, and then I ended up writing that one on my own. <laughs> and you didn't even get it. Gosh. It's... Anyway, way too many Google pages opened with Old Testament kings jokes. Please. Yeah. Nothing. But we know this. This is the, this is the history of Israel, right? We, we, we have, uh, uh, they're so close to, to extinction as a, as a people. They get so close because they veer so far. And so, so you have the northern tribes, you have the northern kingdom, which ends up in exile, and the southern kingdom, a few hundred years later, the exact same thing. They're sent into exile. The kings were total failures, one after the other after the other. And it's a reminder that they were failures just like Adam. 
But God does not cease to be king. He is not finished with Israel at this point. And he still holds his covenant that he will bring forth a Davidic king. And we're still waiting for for dominion over the world and the nations under one Davidic king. Now, let's do what we did last week. Let's put ourselves in their situation. We put ourselves in that in their situation and we're thinking we're looking at king after king after king who has failed who has led the people astray, who has uh, intermarried with, with women from outside cultures and religions and brought in foreign gods. And they've misled their people with only very few exceptions. And they bring curses down on the, on the nation, leading to exile. What do you think that the people were waiting for? What, what, what was their great hope if they were looking for a leader, if they were looking for a king? They were probably anticipating a, a, a dominant king who, who is going to crush the enemy politically. Uh, someone who would bring them peace geographically with the nations around them. Someone who would restore their hope that life can be better. Someone who would lead them into prosperity. Bring them back to the glory days in every material way. Now think about that for a second. Is that not what we want? Is that not what we desire? Well, let's see if their expectations are met. And so we turn from kings then. And as we turn to the New Testament, we find that there's this puppet kingdom that's been set up, uh, the Herodian dynasty, which is, they're actually descendants of Esau, who are not even a covenant group, Right? It just goes to show us what a sham this picture is of, the, of, the, of this king, king line that's existing in these days. But onto the scene enters the fulfillment of all of the prophecy of kings. Onto the scene enters one who meets all the criteria of Deuteronomy 17. He is in the line of David according to the Davidic covenant. Onto the scene enters the real king. But he's not born in a palace. He's not born with material wealth, material means. He's not born with earthly pomp and and, and ceremony. He's born with heavenly pomp and ceremony as the the angels sing and declare his glory. And he's visited by the magi who who recognize him for who he is to some degree. And and, and Herod is terrified that he's going to raise up an army against him. Uh, But Jesus' life in humility as the son of a carpenter is far from royalty, is far from kingship. Listen to what the angel Gabriel says to his mother Mary about him in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Fast forward to Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River by John, and, and we read from Mark chapter 1, verse 11, that the, the, the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and the voice of God speaks from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2, uh, Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7, which says, 
As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. But where specifically in the New Testament do we see Christ as king? Well, this is where things continue to be upside down, don't they? Just as his birth wasn't received as you would expect of a king, let alone a cosmic king, his life follows much of the same path. He, d- he does receive some kingly treatment in, in really small little windows. The two accounts of women anointing his feet, one by Mary of Bethany who uses perfume, the other by a sinful woman who uses her tears, both showing a right recognition of his anointing, something reserved for priests and kings it wasn't happening on a large scale, but, but, but on a very small scale in the hearts of those chosen ones to whom the Holy Spirit revealed in part who Jesus was. And then we have Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we celebrate next week in Palm Sunday. It's fulfilling that prophecy of Zechariah. And the people are so excited that, that they may have their new king if he is the Messiah. Then he will rule over his people. And in turn, he's going to overthrow the authorities who are constraining them as a nation. In this case, Rome. And where did they get this notion that that's what he'll do? Your enemies will be made a footstool. He will rule with an iron scepter. He will dash the nations. And that's the rest of Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And why did they focus on these prophecies and not he will be humble, he will suffer, he, his people will reject him? It's because they wanted something so bad that they would do anything to get it. Esau wanted a pot of stew so badly that he sold his birthright for it. David desired Bathsheba so badly he was willing to kill a man for it. Peter desired his own safety so badly he was willing to deny Jesus for it. On a non-biblical scale, I remember running for class president in elementary school and I would do anything to get it including spreading lies about the other candidates, which ensured that I would have a great future in the real political world. (laughs) Because that's the name of the game in politics, isn't it? But think for a moment. What are the things in your life that you are so desperate for that you would do anything to have it? Is it love? Is it peace? Is it prosperity and wealth? What is it that has so captured your heart? The Jews in this day, what did they want? They wanted the nation to rise up and wipe out the pagan nations. They wanted power, control. They wanted supremacy. They wanted to live their lives not under the oppression of another. And is that what Jesus gave them? No. 
World history shows that people, by and large, have mostly lived under some form of oppression. The Jews are under Rome. Later, the Christians will be under Rome. The early church was under persecution. Then Constantine shows up. He converts to Christianity, and there's brief peace. Then you have the rise of Islam. Look at Western Europe. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. Even the Catholic Church is set up as a, as a kingdom and begins to abuse its power and authority until the Reformation. Then you have the Enlightenment and the Renaissance, which are kingdoms of thought. Then you have nations set up and they rise and they fall. They go to war. There's oppression. There's domination. The effects of Adam are everywhere. So what happened? Where is the kingdom of God in all of this? Where is the king who fulfilled the office of king? When Jesus described his kingdom, what did he say to Pilate? My kingdom is not of this world. And how true that was. Because the Romans mock him as a king, and he's given a crown but it's a crown of thorns. And they put a purple robe on him, but it's to mock him, to ridicule him. He's even given a sign over his cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And the people call out to him, you who said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down. So where is it? Where is this kingdom? Where is the king? Beloved, it's the same kingdom we read about in the beginning. Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and the king, his kingdom rules over all. It's not a kingdom that conquers land the way nations do. It's a kingdom that has always ruled over all. We don't make Christ anything. He rules over all. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. We cannot read kingdom language through the grid of American Christian nationalism, nor can we read kingdom language through the grid of moralistic social gospel. It is not as if Christ is gaining or losing power and authority. He has established his throne. His kingdom rules over all. This kingship is therefore to be seen as his official power to rule over all things in heaven and on earth for the glory of God and the execution of God's purpose of salvation. If Christ is not presently ruling in this capacity, then we have to ask ourselves, who's minding the store? Whose authority is this world under? We can think of Christ's kingly rule today in terms of his kingdom of power and his kingdom of grace. 
It's not that we're awaiting him to to take his role of king and then begin his ruling power. It is that he does it now. He, He is in full control and he is ordering all of human history as he sees fit. This means that at his ascension, which interestingly enough, In Acts chapter 1, the disciples said, are you now going to restore the authority and the kingly authority to Israel, the nation? And what does he say? No, I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit on you. At his ascension, he ascends to the right hand of God, his Father. And even now, he rules over all of creation, the kingdom of power. And even now, rules over the church, the kingdom of grace. Now, I know that this doctrine can be confusing, so so let me try and break it down for us. Why are there two kingdoms? Why do we say there are two kingdoms? Because Christ rules the church. He is the head of the church, his bride, his body. We are his people. In fact, that's the rest of the quotation from Colossians chapter 1 that we read earlier. He is the head of the body, the church. But he also rules the world, all of creation. Let me start with the kingdom of grace. His rule is a a spiritual rule. As Louis Burkhoff puts it, it is established in the hearts and in the lives of believers. Christ's rule over his kingdom is based on his redemptive work. No one is a citizen of this kingdom by virtue of their humanity. Only the redeemed have the honor and privilege It is a spiritual kingdom. It has no flag. It has no world headquarters. It has no P.O. box. But it is certainly and powerfully present when Christ's people gathered together to hear God's word proclaimed and to receive the sacraments. And so Paul writes in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We must be careful not to confuse the kingdom of God with our cultural, our our economic, and our, our, our political institutions, as Jesus said in John chapter 18. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. It is the reign of Christ in the lives of his believers. And his church is a global church. It's a global church which fulfills God's promise to Abraham that the nations would be brought in under his authority and that his spiritual descendants would be without number. The kingdom of grace. Secondly, the kingdom of power. The kingdom of power, on the other hand, refers to Christ's rule and dominion over all of creation. In this case, it is, it is creator, uh, as creator over all, he is the Lord of all. He orders the affairs of, uh, of nations and controls the, in, the, the destinies of individuals. Quite simply, Scripture puts it this way. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Psalm 115 this serves as the basis for understanding all of history as ultimately serving the purpose of the redemption of God's people. Since we know that God is working together everything after the purpose of his will, Ephesians 1. 
and that he is ordering all things so that human history is racing towards this great final climax, the return of the Lord to the earth for the resurrection and the final judgment. It is this kingly rule of Christ that gives us comfort in the midst of turmoil and the signs of the end of the age, whether it's earthquakes or disease or wars or rumors of wars, it gives us comfort no matter the geopolitical situation that we see. Listen, I do not care who the president of the United States is as long as I know that Jesus is king. I don't care who the governor is as long as I know that Jesus is king. I don't care who the international leaders are, prime ministers, presidents, kings, queens. As long as I know that Jesus is king, that is all that matters. So stop living like Jesus is not king of the church and king of the world. Live lives as if they were under the king's authority as ambassadors proclaiming the message of reconciliation. For beloved, if anyone asks you, why are you acting differently? Being unmoved by the things of the world, being confident in what you do, you tell them, I worship the prophet who reveals, the priest who reconciles, the king who reigns. Long ago, At many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we admit if you are not prophet, priest, and king, then this is all a waste of time. Uh, We would be looking for another. But as we've looked these past several weeks, we've seen from Scripture over and over and over again the prophecies that claim who you would be and who you are and We've seen the failures over and over and over again of the prophets, the priests, and the kings of man. But then we set our eyes on Christ, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, the final prophet, the final priest, the final king, who we set our eyes on we consider his words and what he has called us to and we know our hope can rest secure in him not in what we can accomplish 
but in what has been accomplished for us. And so we get to proclaim a message of reconciliation, not a message of works righteousness, but a message of hope and peace. We thank you that you hold this threefold office perfectly. And we worship you because you are worthy. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.